0: Welcome to this week's message. We hope you enjoy this teaching from Pastor Chris Dirksen, the Executive Pastor here at Southland Church. For more information about this message and other resources, visit mysouthland.com. We're in a series on Luke and I'm just gonna start going here. Uh, We're working our way through the book of Luke. Uh, Technically, we're in chapter 6, but I told you at the beginning, because I started the series in in, uh, fall, I said I'm not touching the first couple of chapters, because at Christmas time, I might want to come back. So we're going to go back to Luke chapter 1. And uh, I want to preach a message uh, today on just the first four verses of the book of Luke. And uh, normally, people don't, uh, as preachers, we don't spend a lot of time on the first four verses of the book of Luke. Many of us don't. We usually breeze through the first four verses and then we get on with kind of the rest of the story. You know, the famous parts, you know, Mary and the angel and Joseph and baby Jesus and all that sort of stuff. And so we usually don't pay a lot of attention to the first four verses, but I have really f- felt an, an urgency. And I actually didn't even know that the, we had middle school students in our services uh, this weekend when I was prepping for the message. I only found that out in between messages last night, but I had already told my daughter, Joy, who's in uh, middle school. She's in grade seven, that I wanted her in this service uh, t- today. She's gonna be in the, in the 11, um, because I felt a, really, a real burden uh, for, our, for our kids recently, and especially this week, and I think it was from God, but anyway, that's what I was feeling as I was praying getting ready for the message. But we are living in a culture of extreme skepticism, uh, extreme skepticism about all things uh, Christianity, and our kids are going to school, and I feel a burden that as a church and as parents... We have to do a really good job of planting our kids' feet deep in truth that they can have confidence that what we believe is true. And you know, it's fascinating You think, what does that have to do with the book of Luke? Well, I'm going to show you in the first four verses of the book of Luke, that's the whole reason why Luke wrote this book. Okay? And so I'm going to read it to you, and then we'll pray and we'll get into this. But Luke says this, at the beginning of his book, he's going to tell us his whole reason for writing the book of Luke. And here it is. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things as you have been taught. Let's pray and we'll get into this. Lord Jesus, I want us to have a fresh encounter with your Holy Spirit this morning and for us to leave this place with a confidence and a certainty that what we believe is not a fairy tale and it's not made up, that you would make us strong as a church, and more importantly, that you would help us to pass on that certainty to our many, many kids here. What an inheritance we have, that you would help us to pass that certainty and confidence onto our children, as a church and as parents, Lord Jesus. In your precious name we pray, amen. So what was the purpose of the book of Luke, or at least one of the main purposes? He writes it right here at the beginning. He's writing to his friend, Theophilus, and we don't know anything else about Theophilus other than that judging by his name. He's most likely a Greek uh, or a Roman. He's probably not Jewish judging by the name. But he, so Luke has his friend Theophilus and he's writing to him and he says, the reason I'm writing this I'm not just passing on some nice moral teachings. I'm not passing on some, just some neat stories. The reason I'm writing it, because lots of other people, he says right at the beginning, many, if you look at that first line up there, many have undertaken to compile a narrative of these things. So lots of people had already been writing about Jesus' life. But Luke is now going to write to his friend and he says, I'm writing to you so that you can have certainty. I want you to know that these things actually happened. I want you to know that what I'm writing about, this is not a fairy tale, this is not just some neat religious uh, writings, these are not nice fables with spiritual truths in them. I'm writing to you so that you may have certainty that these things actually happened, okay? And of course, that is the exact opposite, isn't it true when it comes to the Christmas story? That is pretty much the exact opposite of what our culture wants the Christmas story to be. Our, our, our culture wants the Christmas story to be just a cute story. Our culture wants Christmas just to be this cute, it's this cute little myth and we share presents and we feel good and then we move on with our lives as we did before. Our culture wants this to be a cute story. Luke writes the Christmas story, he starts the Christmas story by saying, this is not just a story. I'm not writing to you to tell you a story. I'm writing to you that you can have certainty. These are historical events. Real people, in real time, in a real place, these things actually happened. It's, it's historical. And before I even move on with this message, we just have to take a little bit of time, and I just have, we have to meditate on the fact that this is incredibly unique. You know, we take this so for granted as Christians. We grow up with these stories and of course we're taught from the beginning that these things are true and we don't even think about it. It's like a fish in water. We don't even realize the environment that we're in. But we have to understand how unique this is among all the world religions. It's utterly unique to read a statement like this in our holy book, if you will, in our Bible, to read a statement like this, Luke says, I investigated these things and they really happened, is actually incredibly unique. You open up the books of other religions, you don't find this kind of of writing. And again, that's not me putting those religions down. I always have to put that caveat in now, because in our country, to disagree with someone is to be hateful. So just so you know, just because we disagree with someone doesn't mean we hate them. Is that not true? Amen? Okay? So, but it's not hateful for me to say that what we believe is totally different than what they believe. And if you open up their holy books, I'm not even saying this this doesn't make us better than them, it doesn't make them worse or anything like that, it just makes these things incredibly unique. If you open up the scriptures, for example, you know, for a religion like Hindu or many of the eastern religions, okay, you won't find anything like this. It's not written as history, it's mythological, right? And that's that and 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 so the point and and, and they would of course say, "Well, yes, um, but the point of it is to pass on these spiritual truths." That's exactly what I'm saying. It's unique. Christianity is unique. Luke is not writing saying, "I want to pass on some stories and you can learn some spiritual truths from them." He's saying, "I'm writing some things down that I investigated. I actually went and talked to the eyewitnesses, okay? And I investigate these things, they actually happen. You read, you know, from Hinduism, you read about mythological creatures and in in, in mythological time, and it's not real places. It's not real time events. It's not real people, okay? And this is how many of the religions of the world are. They're compilations of wise uh, teachings or moral teachings or mythological stories that are meant to convey spiritual truths, but they're not history. And you might pick out one religion, you might say, well, what about Islam? Islam is is, you know, uh, kind of, his, you know, more of a historical religion than a, than a mythological religion. So maybe Islam and Christianity are similar. But if you compare Islam to this too, you won't find anything like this in the Quran. I mean, the difference between the Bible and the quran it's actually unbelievable how unique this is. We need to just stop and appreciate these first four verses here. It, uh, first of all, Muhammad did not claim that God came to earth in the flesh and walk around that he knew him. Muhammad claimed to receive revelation from God, all kinds of abstract theological truths about who God is. And he says, you know, God is Allah and we should worship him. But he didn't have actual encounters like that with God. Plus, he was only one man anyway. In the Bible, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Peter, Jude, James, a whole bunch of people writing down not just abstract theological truths about God, but actually writing and saying, we saw him alive after his death. History. Real person. Totally different. And a whole bunch of people. Not just one person. It's really unique. And so Luke starts off his book and he says, I, I looked at this. I, look at the, the, his, his phrase there. Among us. These are not just things that happened far away long, long ago. You know, it's easy for skeptics nowadays because we live 2,000 years later and we live across the ocean from the Middle East. And so it's easy for for skeptics now to feel it's all a myth. Jesus is a myth because that happened a long time ago in a faraway place. I don't think it really happened. It's easy to doubt when you're far away and long ago, okay? But the thing you have to understand here is Luke is writing in a present. He said, these things happen among us. It happened in the places where I live, in the towns and the province where I have lived and traveled. Okay, among us. It happened among people I personally know. Not long ago, far away. But among us, he says. And again, this is a real problem for people in our culture who just want the Christmas story to be a cute, nice fairy tale because Luke isn't giving us that option. Luke doesn't give us the option that this is just a cute, you know, fable you can tell your kids and it doesn't really mean much other than you should have good feelings and give each other gifts. He says, I investigated this. It happened among us, okay? it says, eyewitnesses there following closely for some time. He said, I looked at this for a while. He said, these things really happened. So either he's telling the truth about that or he's totally lying and making it up. But cute, nice, fable, myth doesn't work for the Christmas story or any of the events we read about in the book of Luke. Now, of course, someone might be sitting there and you might have an objection. And this is, we're going to spend our whole, our whole message is going to be about this whole purpose of the book of Luke. Because that's what he wrote for and that's where we're going to spend this message. But someone might have this objection, well, maybe Luke investigated this and he talked to the eyewitnesses and it was in the area where he lived and he talked to all these people who saw it happen. But maybe the eyewitnesses made up their stories and Luke was just gullible and believed it all. And again, it's very easy 2,000 years later to be a skeptic. It's very easy 2,000 years later to be a skeptic and just say, well, I don't, I don't believe something like this could happen, therefore it didn't happen. But we actually have to go back to the beginning and see, if this was a fable, how on earth did it get started? Do you ever think about that? Because you might think to yourself, well, okay, Luke investigated this, but maybe everybody he talked to just made it up, like, and he just believed them, he was gullible, okay? Well, let's, let's, I want to bring this into our time now, And I want us to just take a moment and think about how hard it would be to make up a story about someone rising from the dead. Have you ever tried to make up a story that someone you knew rose from the dead? Let's imagine, and this is, I I just have to make it real, okay? So uh, let's imagine, for example, because you all know him, so I'll I'll just use him. It's not that we wish him to be dead, of course not. Um, And and this is not about, but okay, so we'll just keep going before I put my foot in my mouth too far. Let's imagine Pastor Ray died, okay? Now, it's obviously not something we want. We'd all be very sad, and it'd be horrible. Let's imagine he died. In 10 years from now, I just suddenly decide, you know what? I'm going to start telling people and trying to convince people that he rose from the dead, How many of you would believe me? I'm just looking because I will remove you from any leadership positions you were in. (laughs) I'll immediately give you a 1-800 number and you will need to seek help, okay? None of you would believe me. Like if I just went to you and said, Pastor Ray Rosenbed, none of you would believe me. Now, okay, but even before I get to this whole thing, who would believe me? Let's just step back one moment and think, why would I ever want to do something like that? Have you ever thought about that? Like, it's easy for skeptics 2,000 years later to just say, they made it up. It's easy 2,000 years removed to just say, well, they made it up, and I, that, and I don't have to think about it. But actually, let's get into their world a little bit, and let's think about this. Why on earth would anybody ever make up a story that someone rose from the dead? Why would I do something like that? Would it make my life better? Absolutely not. Okay. I would lose my job here, very quickly. If I started claiming that Pastor Ray rose from the dead and was God, I would lose my job here, okay? My friend, I wouldn't have many friends. It would put a strain in my family. You might think, well, the people who loved him, they would want to jump on board with this. Your family would want to jump on board making a story that a loved one uh, uh, rose from the dead and is God? Those are the last people that would want to do that. It would be hurtful to bring up something that crazy. I mean, to try and think, how do you spread this to a whole bunch of people? Okay. How do you spread this? Let's imagine I go to my brother Stefan. He's the test case. Okay, out of everybody I know, possibly, maybe I could convince him to do something this crazy. Okay. So imagine how this conversation goes. Okay. I go to Stefan. Um, I want you to start telling people that Dad rose from the dead. Have you been taking your medication? Right. Have Chris? Do you need a vacation? Are you stressed out? Well, no, 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 I, I actually, I, you know, he, I think he might have rose from the dead, and I want to start telling people that he rose from the dead. Like, how does this conversation go? And someone's going, absolutely not, I'm not going to do that. Why would I do that? Why would you be so hurtful as to say something crazy? Let's just have these good memories of him. Why would we make up a story about him? But, no, no, Steph, I just think it's a good idea. Why is it a good idea? Give me one reason why it's a good idea. Okay? So imagine how this conversation goes. And I'm just talking about trying to convince one person, never mind hundreds of people, I'm trying to convince one person to join me in saying that they saw Jesus rise from the dead. Okay? Now, let me just make it a little bit harder yet. And now I have to add in there, when I'm doing this sales pitch, oh yeah, and Stefan, if you agree to join me, uh, you might lose your life over this one. You'll almost certainly be persecuted. You could lose your home and all that kind of stuff if you do this. Now, do you want to join me in making this story up? Does this make any sense? That someone would make up a story out of nothing about someone rising from the dead. Whether they be loved ones or whatever, nobody's going to want to join me in this. And yet what we find in the time of Luke is that hundreds of people, I'm not talking hundreds of people believe Jesus was God. That's true. Hundreds and thousands of people very quickly came to believe that. What I'm saying is that in the time of Luke, in the time of Jesus, shortly after his death, hundreds of people claimed that they saw Jesus alive after his death. How on earth did that happen? Again, I want to make a distinction here. Sometimes people say, well, people believe all kinds of things that are wrong. I'm not talking hundreds of people believed in abstract theological truth about Jesus as God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying hundreds of people said they saw Jesus alive after his death. For example, let me show you this. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says this. For I delivered to you As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now look at verse 5. This is where it gets really interesting. And that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most, incredible statement here, most of whom are still alive. That's in Paul's day. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James than to all the the apostles. Paul says he appeared to more than 500 people after he died, alive. Now the skeptic looks at that and says, well, of course Paul says that. He's he's a believer, he's biased, okay? Uh, No, 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 no. Do you remember, actually, who hated the Christians and who hated Jesus? It was Paul, okay? Paul hated them. He had no reason, okay? We're not even talking about a loved one. What reason would Paul have to believe that someone had risen from the dead if he didn't really believe that people had seen this. Okay? And he puts the challenge out there, but he became convinced. He investigated this thing, and he became convinced that they were telling the truth. And so I love what he writes here, most of whom are still alive. He's writing to the Corinthians. In other words, he's saying, you can check this out for yourself. You can actually go. He says, I've talked to a whole bunch of these people. I have not just talked to people who had this abstract theological thing, I believe Jesus is God. Well, that's an abstract theological truth. You could be right or you could be wrong. He's saying, I talk to people who are saying, fact, I saw Jesus alive after his death. Now, why would somebody make that up? Why would hundreds of people make that up? Especially if they were going to be persecuted for doing it. If we bring that back into today, if we bring that into that illustration I have with Pastor Ray, okay? Okay. It's not enough for me just to convince one person, like my brother Stefan. I'd have to convince hundreds of you to do it. But I'd also have to convince some of Pastor Ray's enemies, if there are such people, people who don't like them. I'd have to convince them, or people that don't like me, or people that don't like us. I'd have to convince them to believe as well. How on earth would I ever be able to convince people to do that? Have you ever thought about that? See, again, it's easy to be a skeptic. It's easy to be a skeptic 2,000 years later and say, well, I just don't believe that. Those people made it up. It's all a myth. But actually, the skeptic, and the skeptics will often say the onus is on us as Christians to prove what we believe. Well, I'm offering up some proofs today. But what the skeptic doesn't realize is the skeptic himself actually bears a burden of proof because the skeptic has to explain this historical fact. And the historical fact is not the skeptic doesn't have to prove that Jesus is God. That that you know abstract theological truth, we don't need to we don't you, we don't need to ask them to prove that. The historical fact that they need to prove to to answer is how did hundreds of people come to claim that they saw Jesus alive after his death, because this is a historical fact. Hundreds of people claimed it, and very quickly, the other people who were around them that lived in that area came to believe that Jesus risen from the dead, and based on that, they then made the conclusion that he is God, and it spread all over the Roman Empire very quickly, and out of nothing, there was no Christianity, there was no Christian religion, and out of nothing, this thing springs up and suddenly spreads all over the empire and then all around the world. The skeptic actually has to answer, how on earth did that happen? You can sit here 2,000 years later and say, I don't think it happened. But then you have to explain, how did this happen? How did it happen? And if we bring it into today's day and age, I dare anyone to try and start a rumor, a random rumor like that today and see how far it will go. It's impossible. Now, I know what some people might think. See, we sometimes have a bias that, people 2,000 years ago were stupider than we are today, and the reason we think that is because we have, you know, microwaves and TVs and stuff like that. Can I just tell you something? TV does not make us smarter. <laughs> <laughs> and any of you know that? Can I just say something else, okay? The human race has not been getting smarter. We have, we have gotten more technologically advanced. We've learned things, so every generation kind of builds on what the generation before did. Yes, so we've made technological advances, we have more technological understanding and scientific understanding than they had 2,000 years ago, but we, the human race, are not smarter than we were 2,000 years ago. And anybody who doubts that, we can go on the internet after this service for just a five or six minutes, and I can show you beyond a shadow of a doubt, and we can just look at Canadians, we won't even bother with the rest of the world, we'll just look at Canadians, and I can show you that we haven't gotten smarter in 2,000 years. It's very easy. Okay, We haven't got smarter. So it's not like people were gullible. People have this idea, well, 2,000 years ago, they were just gullible. You could just tell anyone, I saw Jesus rise from the dead, and they would believe it. Absolutely not. They were not expecting this. Okay, They were, in fact, when it comes to death and stuff, they were more experienced with death than we are now. They were not gullible about people rising from the dead. They had not seen people rise from the dead. And there wasn't a Jewish expectation that a Messiah would come and die and then rise from the dead. It's not like they were looking for this. The disciples were shocked when Jesus said he would die. So this was not on their radar, this was not something they were looking for, and they were not more gullible than we are today. So the question a skeptic has to answer is, how on earth then did hundreds of people come to say, I saw Jesus alive after his death, and this thing spread everywhere? How did that happen? And does the skeptic have a better explanation for that than our explanation, which is, they saw what they saw? They actually saw Jesus alive after his death, and that explains everything. Well, let's look and see if the skeptic has better explanations than that it actually happened. And we'll just look at three of their biggest uh, theories, three of the biggest theories that have been proposed over the years for how so many people came to believe that they had seen Jesus alive after his death. Well, the first theory, one that's been around for a long time, uh, although many skeptics now even deny this one, but one of the big ones for years was the, the theory that he didn't actually die. It's called the swoon theory. And the swoon, the swoon theory says, this is why so many people thought Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't actually die. So he lost a lot of blood on the cross, the flogging, everything. He, he passed out, okay? And they thought he was dead. They wrapped him up in some cloth, put him in a tomb. And he came out three days later, and they mistook that, and they thought, oh, look, he, he rose from the dead. And so the question is, so here we are 2,000 years later, we have to explain the fact that all these people thought they saw Jesus alive after his death. So is this a better explanation than that he actually rose from the dead? Well, let's take a look at this, okay? Uh, First of all, we have to take note of the fact that the Romans, again, were experts in killing people, okay? They knew a lot about death, okay? So... Uh, when in John it says that they thrust a spear up through his side, it went through his lungs and into his heart. And it's very interesting, John chapter 19 says, blood and water poured out. Now that's very interesting because the Romans knew that when blood and water poured out, it meant, it meant the person was dead. And the reason, they, they probably didn't know all the medical reasons for that. But now we know that when a person dies of suffocation, and plus there's some other things going on having to do with the loss of blood, but for a couple of different medical reasons we know now, a person on a cross would have had a huge uh, fluid build up around their heart. And so, after, like when they died and stuff. So when, when they were dead, if you would have pierced the lungs and heart, you would have had blood and water pour out, just like we see in John chapter 19, okay? And so there's no question he was dead. But let's imagine, again, the skeptic, we have such radical skepticism now, it doesn't even have to be a good explanation, it just has to be, is there a one in a billion chance? And I'll, I'll hang on to that rather than believe that, you know, Jesus might have actually risen from the dead, Okay. So let's just take that kind of one-in-a-billion chance. They pierced his lungs and his heart with a spear, blood and water came out. He's been flogged, his back is totally shredded, he's lost tons of, tons of blood. And let's imagine for a moment that he actually didn't die. It really isn't, it's not really in the realm of possibility, but let's imagine he didn't die. They wrapped him up, put him in a tomb. How is it that he gets better in three days just bleeding out? Okay? But let's imagine again, one-in-a-billion, he, he, he lives, he, does, he somehow doesn't bleed out. He lies there in the tomb. But here's the, here's the thing where this, where this theory really comes apart. He now staggers out of that tomb. He somehow moves the stone himself. He staggers out and gets past the guards, and he sees his disciples. What state is he in? Is he in a victory over death state? He's got ribbons of flesh hanging off. He's lost pretty much all of his blood. He's got a gigantic hole through his lungs and his heart. When his disciples see him, are they going to fall down and worship him, or are they going to pity him and try to nurse him back to health? they're not going to go around the Roman Empire saying he rose from the dead. If he comes out looking like that, it's just proven that he's just a regular man like the rest of us. Isn't that true? He would inspire pity, not worship. And that's why today even uh, most skeptics reject this theory because they understand it does not explain history because those disciples then went all over the place and were willing to lose their lives saying... We don't care if we lose our lives because Jesus has conquered death because we saw him rise from the dead, and him coming out of that tomb, mostly dead, would not have done that. Does that make sense? So that's the swoon theory. We can just cross that one off, okay? So how do we explain how all these people came to think that they saw Jesus alive after his death? Well, we might have to take a step back. Someone might be sitting there, and they might be thinking to themselves, well, first of all, Chris, you're assuming a bunch of things, You're assuming Jesus was a real person, and you're assuming he actually died on a cross. And once you have that assumption, now you expect us to explain how his tomb was empty afterwards, and it's built on a whole bunch of assumptions anyway. So, how do we even know Jesus actually existed, that he was a real person, or that he died on a cross? Well, I'm so glad that you actually brought that question up because (laughs) that's actually a great question. There's actually far more proof for the existence of Jesus the man and his death on the cross than pretty much any other historical event in all of ancient history. Do you know that? Let me just read you outside, not even including the Bible writers. There are so many writers, Christians, and in the Bible, so many witnesses who wrote extensively detailed reports about Jesus and his death. But even if we leave those aside, there are at least a dozen outside the Bible, non-Christian uh, writers and sources in the ancient world that all talk about Jesus, that he was a real man, and that he actually died on the cross. And I'll just read to you three. Uh, first is Tacitus, the great Roman historian. Uh, much of what we know about the Roman Empire comes from Tacitus. May, you know, scholars and historians respect him. And he was writing about a persecution that Nero put on the Christians. And in this, he confirms a, couple of, you know, a bunch of things about Jesus and, the go- and what the gospels talk about his death. He writes this, Nero, and I just have shortened it a bit so it doesn't get super long. But Nero fastened the guilt on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. Christ is so there. He confirms Jesus was a real person from whom the name had its origin. Suffered the extreme penalty, confirming that Jesus was a real person that died on a cross during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And a most mischievous superstition that's checked for a moment again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. You can clearly see he's not favorable to Christianity. But in this passage, he confirms a whole bunch of things from the Gospels. Jesus was a real person. Jesus actually died on the cross. He died at the hands of Pontius Pilate. And this mischievous superstition, he totally confirms that right after Jesus' death, a whole bunch of people were running around saying they saw him alive after his death. Tacitus confirms all of that, and he's not a Christian. Okay? How about the writer Josephus, famous, famous Jewish historian writing within 60 or 70 years of Jesus' death? He writes this, around this time there lived Jesus, and I took out all the parts of this quote, by the way, that are debatable, because there's a few uh, parts of, of Josephus' writing that people debate, was that actually him, was it someone afterwards? I've just taken out the debatable parts and just kept in the parts that, that historians agree are true to him. He says this, around this time there lived Jesus, for he was one who did surprising deeds, uh, alluding there to the fact that uh, miracles and stuff. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks when Pilate, upon hearing him accused by men of the highest standing among us, had condemned him to be crucified. Those who in the first place came to love him did not give up their affection for him, and the tribe of Christians so called after him have still to this day not died out." And 2,000 years later, it's still true, amen? Still hasn't died out. But Josephus writes this, he confirms a whole bunch of things. Jesus was a real person, Jesus died on a cross, he died under the reign of Pontius Pilate, Okay. We, this is confirmed over and over and over and over again. I'll show you just one more. The Babylonian Talmud, this was a collection of Jewish religious writings, kind of like a commentary, the, you know, writings starting around 70 AD, so shortly after the time of Jesus. The people who put this together, obviously, they're from the Jewish religious leadership. They're against Jesus and they don't like Christians. And, uh, and look at what they say. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, that's Jesus uh, in Hebrew, was hanged, and hanged it was the Jewish... Uh, term for crucifixion. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshua was hanged for 40 days before the execution took place. A herald cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. So you can see that they don't like Jesus and they don't like Christians. And yet here they are, they're confirming he was a real person. He died on a cross. They're even confirming that he died on the eve of Passover, just as we learn in the gospels. Isn't that amazing? And so there is, and again, like I said, there are at least, I'm going to put that screen up, there There are at least 12 different outside the Bible sources. Never mind that actually when people say we shouldn't believe the Bible because those sources are biased, do you want to just know, can I just stop for a moment and just tell you how ridiculous that is? Let's go back to, you know, Pastor Ray, okay? Like he died, like let's say, you know, he dies or whatever, and again, just as an illustration, but, and then 10 years from now, I write a book about him or something, And then people say, well, you just made up, Pastor Ray. He never actually lived, and we can't trust you because you're part of his family. Does that make any sense? You know, just because these people ended up loving Jesus, maybe the reason they ended up loving him is because what they wrote was the truth. And just because they wrote a bunch of things and they followed Jesus doesn't mean that we can't trust that he existed. So these details are confirmed by these outside-the-Bible sources, but that doesn't mean we can't trust what's in the Bible. But at least 12 different pagan writers confirmed that Jesus was an actual historical person. From their writings, we learn that he was crucified uh, and, you know, by, under Pontius Paul and all these sorts of things. But here's a whole bunch, Tacitus, Suetonius, Pliny the Younger, who was actually a leader in the Roman Empire, Pictus, Lucian, Aristides, and many more. Uh, there's this whole thing of, I, we're just going to be skeptical about the existence of Jesus. Let me tell you this, it's time for us sometimes to begin being skeptical of the skeptics in our culture. Because radical skepticism has gone beyond investigating for the truth and it just doubts for the sake of doubting. And here's why I say we should be skeptical of the skeptics. They doubt so much. If you're going to doubt the existence of Jesus, then you actually need to doubt all of known history as we know it. Because if you doubt the existence of Jesus, then you need to put on your list of doubting that you doubt the existence of Julius Caesar, of Alexander the Great, of Aristotle, of Plato, of Socrates, of all the rest of history as we know it ancient, because there's a lot more evidence and attestation to Jesus than there is for any of them. Jesus was a real man, and he actually did die on a cross. So we're left then with this historical anomaly, how on earth did so many people come to think that they saw him alive after his death? How do we explain that? You know, it's interesting that there's even early accounts outside the Bible that when the enemies of Christians uh, write, they all agree that the tomb is empty. Isn't that interesting? And of course, we read about that in the Bible, but can I just show you two outside the Bible sources? The first one I'll read you is a little letter that was circulating around some Jewish communities in the time of the early church. And I want you to notice, and I want you to see what it says, a godless and lawless heresy had sprung up from one Jesus. So again, more confirmation that Jesus was a real person, a Galilean deceiver, whom we crucified, more confirmation that he actually died on a cross, but his disciples stole him by night from the tomb. Now you know what's interesting here? They don't deny that the tomb is empty. Is that not fascinating? Because here's the thing, if, because again, the skeptic 2,000 years later, it's easy 2,000 years later to say they just made it up. But remember, this story had to start some, somewhere. How did it get made up in the start? Because if anybody would have made up that he rose from the dead, the first thing the enemies of Christianity would have said is, look, his bones, his body is still in the tomb. But they don't say that. They say his disciples stole the body from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceived men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Another Jewish writing that told it off the issue says this, diligent search was made and he, Jesus, was not found in the grave. Interesting. Not found in the grave. Diligent search. I wonder what that even means, diligent search. Like they must have been going crazy when Jesus rose from the dead looking. Diligent search was, was made and he was not found in the grave where he had been buried. buried. So now they have to offer up uh, an alternative. A gardener had taken him from the grave and had brought him into his garden and buried him in the sand over which the waters flowed into the garden. Okay? So this now brings up our second theory because we said to the skeptic, the skeptic actually has to give us an alternative. Because the historical fact is Jesus was a real person. He actually died on the cross. And hundreds and hundreds of people said they saw him alive after his death. So the, the skeptic has to explain how that happened. So we looked at the swoon theory. We crossed that one off. It's not possible that that could have caused what we see in history here. So the second theory is, well, and this one obviously you can see started 2,000 years ago, is that someone, maybe the disciples, stole the body. And so the question is, is this a good explanation for historically how so many people came to think that Jesus had risen from the dead? And the answer is no, for several reasons, but let me just start it by saying this. The first reason we know that this is not a good explanation is this. When Paul talks about hundreds of people and we see, you know, the apostles and Jesus' family and all these different people that Luke, you know, said he investigated the eyewitnesses. When they went around telling everybody that Jesus had risen from the dead, do you notice what they didn't say? They didn't say, uh, we know he rose from the dead because the tomb is empty. If that had been what they had said, possibly, you know, someone stealing the body could have convinced them that. But, you know, that's not what they said. They said... We believe Jesus rose from the dead because we saw him alive after his death. Do you see how that are, those are two different things? Actually, an empty tomb isn't enough. An empty tomb isn't what convinced them he was risen. It was seeing him risen. They actually saw him alive after his death and said, we saw him alive. That's why they were willing to give their lives saying he had risen. So actually, having a stolen body doesn't do anything for that because they didn't, they didn't say we believe he rose because it's not like Peter went to the tomb, saw it was empty and said oh, I think Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? The reason he believed Jesus rose from the dead is because he saw Jesus alive after he was dead. And that's what they said they were seeing, and that's why they were willing to be killed. But the second thing I want to put in there is it doesn't explain the change that comes over the disciples. Think about this. The disciples, after the crucifixion, Jesus' family and the disciples and Jesus' followers were all sad and depressed. All of their hopes dashed. They thought Jesus was the one to, you know, the Messiah is going to establish his kingdom. And then he died. They were depressed. They were scared. They were frightened. Suddenly, these guys go out. And this also is a historical fact. It's a historical fact that 10 out of the 11 remaining disciples were martyred for their faith suddenly these guys go out and joyfully begin telling everyone, and the Jewish leaders can't suppress them, they're telling everyone there's life after death and there's a resurrection. And we know that because we saw Jesus alive after his death. Now let me ask you something. If they had stolen the body and made the story up, does that explain how they went from scared to happy and overjoyed and giving their lives? Absolutely not. The only thing that would have made them go from being scared and depressed to being happy to give up their lives is that they actually believed that they had seen Jesus alive after his death. Does that make sense? So the stolen body doesn't explain it. It doesn't explain how people saw him alive after, and it doesn't explain the change that come, came over the disciples. So this, so this brings up the third big theory that skeptics have, have answered, and that is that the eyewitnesses all hallucinated, okay? And, and, uh, and the thing that this one has going... The thing that this theory has going for is the skeptic finally understands that these people, the change that came over them, they actually, they must have seen something. They must have seen something. Like, you, you don't just go from being scared and depressed to spreading this thing unless you actually saw something. So the skeptic goes, well, maybe they hallucinated. So the question is, does a hallucination explain the fact of all these people saying they saw Jesus alive after his death and the change that came over them? Okay? Well, let's think about this for a moment. First of all, if we were talking about one person saying they saw Jesus alive after his death, maybe a hallucination explains it. Okay? And again, let me just make the comparison again: the difference between our scriptures and the Quran, for example. Mohammed, one person wrote the Quran. This book is written by, you know, dozens of different authors. The New Testament by, you know, a whole bunch: Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know, Peter, Paul, James, Jude, all these different people. The difference between Christianity and these other ones is amazing. The first thing we have to understand is it wasn't one person claiming they saw Jesus' life or death. Is one person that claimed? "Hmm, Maybe. Luke says, this happened among us. It happened among people we know in places that I live. I've talked to lots of people. Paul said, there's more than 500 brothers and the apostles and Jesus' family and the disciples and Peter who all saw Jesus alive after his death. So we're not talking about one person here. We're talking about hundreds. Now the thing is, if you're gonna believe that they all had the same hallucination, actually, do you know what? It takes more faith to believe that hundreds of people saw the same hallucination than to believe that hundreds of people actually saw what they say they saw. Do you know in a court of law you only need one or two or three witnesses to prove a point? We have hundreds of people saying we saw Jesus after his death. It actually takes more faith. I actually don't have enough faith to be a skeptic. You ever thought about that? Because if I'm gonna be a skeptic about the resurrection of Jesus, the historical fact is there. Hundreds of people, he's a real person, he died on a cross, and hundreds of people thought, said and were willing to die for the fact that they saw him alive after his death. That's a historical fact. The skeptic has to explain how that happened. The, the, the alternatives to that they actually saw what they saw are so outlandish. Mass hallucination. How do 500 people see the same hallucination? actually takes more faith to believe than that. Actually, in a court of law, if you traipsed 500 people across and they all said they saw something, that would actually pass for something. It actually takes more faith to believe that, and that's why the best explanation for all this, by the way, I have not just picked out, you know, the three worst ones and kind of cherry-picked. These are, you know, what skeptics say could have happened instead, and then take the easy ones and leave the best ones. These are essentially the main alternatives that skeptics have have offered over the centuries. These are our alternatives to believing that it just happened. Is that not amazing? And that's why throughout history, not every skeptic has converted to Christianity, far from it, absolutely far from it. But it's amazing that how many, over the centuries, how many skeptics, when they've investigated the resurrection, have have eventually changed their mind and decided that the best evidence points to the historical fact of the resurrection people like C.S. Lewis and Malcolm Muggeridge, more recently J. Warner Wallace, Lee Strobel, uh, Gary Habermas, people like this, scholars, writers, and thinkers who started out thinking this is a fairy tale and a myth, but when they investigated, came to this, this dead end that a whole bunch of people said they saw Jesus alive and they don't know any alternative other than actually they must have seen what they saw and so converted to Christianity and you know what this is the best news ever it's the best news ever if Jesus was a real person and he actually died on a cross and he rose from the dead you know what? that is the best news ever we can spend the rest of our lives being happy just on that one thing because what it means first of all is that heaven is a real place it means that there's actually forgiveness for our sins It means some of you are sitting here today and you struggle with sickness and health and all kinds of things like that. It means there's actually a resurrection for us in the future. You're going to get a new body. We're going to live forever. It means Jesus is a real person and even when I'm talking about him right now, he's listening and he knows what's going on here. And someday, every single one of us is going to meet him whether you believe in him or not. It's the best news ever. It means there's purpose and meaning to this life. It means he's going to turn all things for our good because he loves us and he died for us. It's the best news ever. Now, you might be sitting here today and you might be a skeptic and you might think, well, there's no way you're going to convince me to not be a skeptic in 40 minutes. And besides, I can see all kinds of holes in your message and your presentation. And I, you know what? Let me just say a couple things to you. First of all, uh, you don't have to, you don't have to, God's not mad at you because you're a skeptic. Did you know that? Thomas, you know Thomas? Doubting Thomas is one of the disciples. Doubting Thomas walked with Jesus for three years. Nobody here ever met Jesus in in person. Thomas walked with him for three years. Then Jesus died. Thomas was sad. The disciples went to the tomb and then actually saw Jesus, came back and told Thomas he's alive, and Thomas still refused to believe. That is a high level of doubt, hey? And he kept not believing until Jesus actually showed up in a locked room and showed him his hands and his his wrists, and, and Thomas went, oh my goodness, right? and then he believed. But Jesus didn't strike him down. And Jesus isn't mad at you because you're a skeptic. He's not mad at you because you want to investigate truth. Okay? So it's not bad, and you can take your time. But let me give you a couple of things. I want to finish this message with a weekly challenge. And the first one is, maybe you're here today, and you're a seeker, you're a skeptic. Um, Let me just give you something to try. Uh, there's There's a book written by Gary Habermas, it's called The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus. Gary, as I mentioned before, was a skeptic. He did not believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead. He actually began to examine it and through his examination came to believe that actually it was a historical fact that Jesus had risen from the dead and changed around. He's a scholar, he's got PhDs and all kinds of expertise and all this stuff. Uh, That book, The Case for the Resurrection of Jesus, is like 380 some pages. So you're going to read, and you're going to read, and you're going to read. It is the most thorough treatment pretty much almost out there, except for maybe N.T. Wright also has a book that's really scholarly, but but it's one of the most thorough books out there that examines historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. I encourage you just to give it a read and uh, take some time going through it. A couple other challenges over Christmas, though. Maybe you're here today, and you're a parent with children who are in middle school or high school, and like I said before, I just had a, I have a real burden for our middle school students and our high school students, uh, my encouragement to you as parents would be to read an apologetics book about Jesus with your kids this Christmas, okay? And you'll notice at the end of it, it says, offer a reward, exclamation mark, okay? Let me explain what I mean by that. Do not go to your kids and say, you're reading this book, and make them not like Jesus because you're mean to them whenever it comes to spiritual things, Okay? So you do. What you do is you bribe them. It's outright bribery. I don't mind that. So whatever it's going to take, and then do it with them relationally. But whatever it's going to take, you say, at the end, we're going to read this book together. Together. Don't just give them a book and tell them to read it. Say, you know, now over Christmas, we're going to read a chapter or two every night. And we're going to discuss it. We'll take 20 minutes or half an hour. We'll discuss it. And at the end of it, if, if you have a good attitude about it and stuff, I'm going to take you to a movie, or I'm going to take you out for dinner, wherever you want, Within reason, uh, I'll eat, or I'll give you this twenty dollar bill, whatever. It is, you just outright buy them out, but you make it a fun thing over Christmas and read an apologetics book with them. I am, I'm just, I just feel this urgency. Our our culture is just attacks with doubt, but most of the doubt isn't rational. They throw ridiculous things at our kids all the time in the media and at school, over and over and over again, trying to make them think that Christianity is not true when there's good reasons to believe Christianity. And it's on us as parents to pass on confidence in the truth to our kids. So I have a couple of suggestions for you books you could do. You could do uh, Cold Case Christianity. There's a kids' version or an adult version. I've actually done the kids' version with my kids. I did that last year. It was fun. You do The Case for Christ. There's also, depending again on the age of your kids, there's a kids' version, there's an adult version. There's Case for a Creator, also by Lee Strobel, is a great one, explaining creation. And then if you have high school-age students, a really good one is On Guard by William Lane Craig. And, uh, and then the last challenge I would have for you over Christmas is, is watch the movie The Case for Christ, the Lee Strobel story. It's a true story. Someone told me last night it's on Netflix. I have not confirmed that. But they just said, if you tell them it's on Netflix, more people will watch it. So there it is. Um, but The Case for Christ, so it's not, it's not an apologetics movie. It's the story of how Lee Strobel, who an award-winning journalist, his wife in the, I think it was in the 70s, she became a Christian, drove him nuts. He thought she was a wacko. He thought Christians were nuts. So he said, I'm gonna, pr- facts over feelings. I'm gonna prove to her. It's a true story. He's written a bunch of books since then, but this is the movie about how he converted. If you have middle school students and high school students, it's a great movie to watch with them and discuss. It's great for them to see someone who's skeptical, seeking truth, and then finding it and coming to Jesus. That's the kind of stories our kids need to see. So read a book with them, bribe them, make it fun, build family, uh, watch a movie. I know we all like to watch movies at Christmas, and so maybe you can put this one in instead of Elf this year, and you'll all be better off for it, let me tell you that right now. (laughs) I just had to throw that in there. Don't ever invite me over to watch that movie. against that. But anyway, let's pray. Let's not, get, let's not get sidetracked right before prayer and worship, all right? Bow your heads I me. Mean, close your eyes. And maybe you're here today. Maybe you're here today, and you actually, you're ready, and you want to give your life to Christ. I'm going to pray a prayer right now. Jesus is a real person. He's a real person in history, and he's a real person right now. And it is just this easy to give your life to him, and you will have eternal life. If you would like to give your life to Christ this morning... I'm gonna pray a prayer and you can just pray along with me quietly in your heart and afterwards you tell someone but it literally is that easy. He's a real person. He actually died. He actually rose from the dead and now he offers salvation to us freely. It's as easy as praying a prayer and asking him. So I'm gonna pray and you can just pray along with me in your heart and, uh, and you can also become a Christian. Lord Jesus, I believe that you are a real person and I believe that you actually died on a cross and rose from the dead. I just can't explain it any other way. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would forgive me of my sins. I want to live with you forever in heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. For the rest of you, I want to pray something else. Lord Jesus, we have got to become better at passing on confidence in our faith to our kids. We're going to need to stand stronger than ever in the coming years and decades here in our country. Would you help us to take this job seriously, but to do it with joy and love, to build families that are strong in the faith. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Southland Church. For more information or to download this and many other messages, please visit us at myselfland.com.